copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. book of Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, we have been in uh, the book of Hebrews for a couple of years now in our uh, morning uh, ministry, and we are currently uh, examining the claim uh, of the writer uh, to the uh, Hebrews, and again, this is written to first century Jewish Christians uh, who were undergoing persecution, some of whom were being tempted to go back uh, to the types and shadows of the old covenant, uh, and in order that they not do that, uh, the writer gives a series of arguments concerning the superiority of Christ, and the current argument that he is making is that Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant built upon better promises. And that is the current argument that we are considering. And in order to prove that argument, the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31 on the promise of the new covenant. And that new covenant consists of four essential promises. And we have looked at three of those uh, promises. The first, that God would place his law uh, in the mind and write it upon their hearts. Uh, the promise that uh, he would be their God and that they would be uh, his people. And the third, that there would no longer be the need, as the old covenant prophets so often did and as godly uh, Israelites did in days of old, speak to their neighbor or to their brother, telling them to know the Lord for in the new covenant, all of the recipients of the blessings of the new covenant know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And that brings us to verse 12, uh, the fourth of the promises, where I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we look into his word this morning. Our Father, it is with joy that we read and uh, anticipate now having expounded such wonderful words as these. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the promises you make in your word. And we thank you, Father, uh, for the joy that we have in being the recipients of such truths. We pray, living God, that today would indeed be a day in which some would be able to declare for the first time, all my sins, though they be many, have been laid upon the spotless Lamb of God. And we pray all of this in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. So I want you to think for a moment about promises that have been made to you or given to you. And if you're to think about those, I'm going to ask this question, what's the most important promise that's ever been given to you? What is, if anything, is a promise or a series of promises that you think to yourself, you know what, these are the things I have built my life on. These are the promises I build my hopes on. Let me put it another way. What is the one promise that if it is not true, if the one who made it is not faithful, what would be the most devastating to you? If that promise isn't true, would it undo your life, your joys, your peace, and your hopes? Now, we're not going to take the time to do this this morning to say, what about you, what about you, what about you? But I can imagine that if I were to open this up and say, what are these promises? I could imagine several that would come to your mind. 
Uh, again, that you are, if you are a Christian, we are speaking of those divine promises given by God himself. And Peter tells us in his epistle that God has given to us what he calls exceedingly great and precious promises. Promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises like, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Promises like, if you come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Or the promise that so many cling to, that God causes all things to work together for good. These promises, among others, are the foundation of our stability and happiness as Christians. But I would submit to you that these promises are built upon other promises. And what I mean by that is that those promises, I'll never leave you, never forsake you, all things work together for good, are not given to all people in all ages indiscriminately. They are given only to those who have been reconciled to God, only to those who have peace with God through the Lord Jesus. And the foundation of that peace with God is what we come to expound and apply this morning. And as we look at this uh, this morning, I want to consider three things. I want to consider, first of all, the foundation of the promise, secondly, the essence of the promise, and then thirdly, the fulfillment or outworking of the promise. The foundation of this promise, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What's the foundation of this statement? Why does this statement have resonance? What, why is this meaningful and exceedingly meaningful for many of us? Well, our church, I hope I can say, our church is a church that glories in the gospel, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We glory in the truth that God made him, the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we through him might become the righteousness of God. That is one of the great compact statements of what we mean by the gospel. All that gospel truth, that Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, offered himself upon the cross, is predicated upon certain fundamental truths which our text is dealing with. For the cross to be what the Bible says the cross is, for it to mean what the Bible says that it means, there more fundamentally has to be the reality that there is a God in heaven and that he is a holy God and that he has spoken and revealed his will for mankind. For the cross to mean anything and the forgiveness of sins to mean anything, there has to be a holy God a God who has spoken and revealed his will to us. For the cross and forgiveness, and forgiveness to be meaningful, there must be the reality of sin. And the reality, as we will see here, that the wages of sin is death and that the soul that sins must die. For this promise to be meaningful to us, we must lay this foundation. What is sin? Well, the old catechism says that sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And the Bible tells us that we have all sinned 
And some deduce from that language or some use that language sometimes to minimize the grossness of sin or the effect of sin or the guilt of sin. So as to say, well, everybody does it. It's no big deal. Like, why, why make a big deal about going to the bathroom? Everybody goes to the bathroom. Uh, why make a big deal about getting sick? Everybody gets sick, right? Everybody sins. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. But the Bible says, but it is a big deal. It affects our body. It affects our world. It is the source of all of the woe and all of the sorrow and all of the trauma and all of the death in the world. Every police station and hospital and graveyard screams to us that sin is a big deal. And we have all, in our own way, participated in sin, whether in thought or word or deed. And we study these concepts and we say there are sins of commission that is often referred to as transgression or iniquity. And there are sins of omission, uh, which we often minimize. I think as Christians, we tend to minimize sins of omission. But the things we should have done, love and grace and mercy and justice withheld, love to God not shown, love to one another left undone. And the Bible tells us that our deeds, our actions, our words, and our very thoughts are recorded before the God before whom all things are naked and laid bare. The God with whom we must have to do, that is, before whom we must give an account. All right, well, somebody counters and says, I don't believe that. I don't believe that there is a God, or I don't believe that God is like that. I don't believe that God is grieved or offended by those things the Bible talks about and Christians seem obsessed with. And I don't believe that God is really offended or bothered by those things. He understands that we're just human. I don't believe that he will hold us accountable. I don't believe that there is a coming day of judgment. And if you believe that, then the coming of Christ, the incarnation and the cross certainly will mean little to nothing to you. And I am saying to you that if you believe those things that the word of God states and states clearly and repeatedly and unashamedly that there is a God in heaven who is holy, who takes sin seriously, and who must deal with sin and with sinners. And because that is so, we witness. And because this is so, we preach. And because this is so, this is why preachers and others plead. This is why Christ is precious to us and why his work on the cross must be proclaimed to every nation. It's because there is a God and we have sinned against him. And because you and I and all humanity possess a soul that must live somewhere forever and that there are only two places where it will abide forever in glory or in hell. We've all sinned. All of us, the Bible says in Romans 3, have fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, we read that the wages of our sin is death. That's the foundation of this promise. Now consider, secondly, the essence of the promise. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, for some of you who have a translation other than the King James or the New King James, you will note 
There's a textual variant here. There's one of the phrases in the King James and New King James that are in uh, our manuscript that are not in other Greek manuscripts, which are the foundation of newer uh, translations. And so uh, depending on what the translation is, you might have lawless deeds or iniquities that are not mentioned here. I'm going to say this, it makes little difference to the overall thrust of the passage. The idea of lawless deeds or iniquities is certainly present in both manuscripts and both texts, and they are presented in many other portions in God's word, and I am going to present it as such. There is a description in the essence of this promise of sin and a description of forgiveness. You note here that God says in this promise, I will be merciful to your unrighteousness. Now the Greek here takes the general word for righteous or righteousness and places um, in our language in a before it. Sometimes you have a word like typical and then atypical or atypical. And that a is, is, is called in grammar the alpha privative. And it just means that it negates. Sometimes we use the prefix uh, un, like so righteousness and unrighteousness, just and unjust to convey the reality. The word is translated, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. It's translated by some as iniquities, by other translations as wickedness, and by others as wrongdoing. You get the idea that this is big. That we are guilty of unrighteousness. Now we may not use that word much in our own daily lives. So that what that person did was unrighteous. But we might say it was really wicked or it was really wrong. The intent here, the intent of the word that the writer uses is that the standard of God's holiness... That's what righteousness means. The standard of God's holiness, this is what's good and right and what is true. God's standard of holiness or justice or righteousness has been willfully defiled, ignored, or rebelled against. Again, I think, you know, sometimes we say, well, sin is, you know, sometimes when we speak of sin, we, we can tend to minimalize it. What Paul is getting at, or the writer is getting at, is a statement that Paul makes elsewhere in the Word of God when he talks about the ability to see sin as exceedingly sinful. I mean, to get it to the point where it's not just an abstract idea, theological concept, something that you read about and you see in the Bible, yeah, blood needs to be shed, sacrifice is offered, Jesus is beaten and crucified and all of the rest. But when you begin to feel that that's me, that I'm the one who has transgressed in this way. There's an old Puritan who wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. That's, That's what the writer is getting at here. For us to see sin in its true colors, that we would feel the weight of it, the grossness of it. It's feeling our sin before God and before others in a way that brings about guilt and shame, that what I've done and what I have said and what I have thought is gross and horrific. It's not funny, it's not entertaining, it's not a joke, it's not okay. 
I've harmed others and I'm not going to minimize it. I've defiled God's honor. I've disobeyed and rebelled against our creator and our king and our lawgiver. And then there is the reality of what is called in the text lawless deeds or iniquities. Again, iniquity is a word that's, I don't know if it's ever used outside of church. I don't know if anybody ever writes about it who's not religious. But it speaks again about going against God's law. It uses the word, we, we uh, takes the word for law and puts the alpha privative in front of it. No law is the idea. A rebellious, hateful, disregard for the law of the one who made you. The one who's taken care of you all your life. The one who fills your lungs even now with air who is given to you even as one who you say is my enemy, but he has made your life pleasant and happy in so many ways, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift that you enjoy. And then there's the word sin. Again, well, sin is a religious word, although this word does exist in our uh, general sociological vocabulary, but not in the way the Bible uses it. We have social sins and uh, that, that someone is condemned by. But the word itself means, as many people would be able to articulate, if you've grown up in church, you know it means, comes from a word, an archery term, to miss the mark. It also means to wander from the path. Those things that perhaps there's, you know, if you say you've wandered from the path or you, you miss the mark, you know, so you'll go target shooting. Some of y'all like to go target shooting. And if some of us went and... Uh, you know, they had the, the silhouette out there or the circle out there, and either we had a, a gun or a rifle or a bow and arrow. And if we missed it, you might get ragged on. You know, you would be blind, you can't see, you're not a man, blah, blah. You know, guys would get on each other. I don't know what women would do in that situation, but, you know, they shoot too. So, But if you miss it or, or, or you wander from the path, we get lost. You may get frustrated that you're lost, that you're, miss the road you were supposed to go on, but you don't feel guilty about it. And we need to understand that sin is more than just the concept, yes, missing the mark, but that mark is what God tells you to do, and that path is the path of righteousness. And again, God wants us to see this for what it is. It's so common. Sin, iniquity, lawlessness is part of us, and it's part of the world that we live in. We've never known a day apart from this. Blasphemy, idolatry, the taking of the Lord's name in vain, ignoring his worship and his word, never rendering him thanks, ignoring the one day in seven that he has appointed for his corporate worship, rebellion against parents and authority, mocking the sacredness of life and the biblical parameters of sex, mocking property rights and truth, and contentment, I mean, are you kidding me to be content? That would crash Wall Street. To boast is to be human. To lie, to crave sensual pleasures, regardless of the cost to ourselves, our soul, and our body, and the souls and the bodies of others, despite what it does to society, so that humanity... And even seemingly religious humans can tolerate sin and at times boast in sin and feel very comfortable in and towards and around 
the most vile things that would have made a past generation blush. I see some things at times, uh, little things people put on the internet, and, and, and sometimes I look at them as they, they have this very negative view of humanity, and depending on who it is, usually white humanity and white male humanity and all of the rest. But we can't escape the realities that are present in some of these. We as a species, we murder. We abuse children. We rape the weak. Oppress those under our thumb. We are, we are a people who have murder and pillage and lies. And we have given ourselves over, the Bible says, every vain imagination. That humanity can be described as it was in the days of Noah. As giving themselves only to sin and wickedness repeatedly. We are a people, as people, we revel in the trivial and we mock and ignore the eternal. But one day, well, there are really two days that reveal sin in its true light. One of those days was 2,000 years ago, and the other is a day that is yet coming. And the forgiveness offered here in this blessed promise of the new covenant cannot be rejoiced in if we do not see sin as sin, and especially if we do not see it here in our own selves. Some of us are great at being outraged at the sins of others, and we trivialize our own. Brethren, if you've never had anything close to the experience of the publican and our Lord's words, that man who beat on his breast and could not look to heaven and said, only God be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but there's a section that came to, a section of a book that came to my mind and I want to read it. It's a bit lengthy. I, uh, I'll see how it goes in my reading of it, but I, I want you to get at least the feel for this. This is in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And Brooks, Thomas Brooks, all, is, is giving the reality that one of Satan's schemes is to paint and perfume sin, to make sin look good. I mean, it always looks good. You, you, if, if, if we saw sin, always saw sin for what it was, I don't know, anybody here do, do dumpster diving on a regular basis in order because you're, you know, that is, you know, dig into, dig into garbage in order to eat? That if you dropped a donut in, in manure that... Hey, you, you drop, you know, again, there's certain foods you drop, you're going to try to do what you can to clean it up. There are certain things you're going to, it's not worth it. And if we can see sin for what it is, but sin doesn't look like donut in, in manure. It looks like it's on a beautiful plate with wonderful aromas wafting from it and angels singing around. That's how sin appears for a moment. And then it reveals itself. Then it takes off its mass. But Brooks says this, consider those very sins that Satan paints and put new names and colors upon. This is a, he says, I want you to help to think of it rightly. It costs the best blood, the noblest blood, the life blood, the heart blood of the Lord Jesus. You have to put that into the picture of the sin that we tolerate or pursue. That Christ should come from the eternal bosom of his father to a region of sorrow and death, that God should be manifested in the flesh, 
the creator made a creature, that he who was clothed with glory should be wrapped with the rags of flesh. He who filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger, that the almighty God should flee from weak men, that is, the God of Israel should go into Egypt, that the God of the law should be subject to the law, that the God of circumcision circumcised, the God who made the heavens working in Joseph's homely trade, that he who binds the devils in chains should be tempted, that he whose is the world and the fullness thereof should hunger and thirst, that the God of strength should be weary, the judge of all flesh condemned, the God of life put to death, that he who is one with the Father should cry out of misery, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he who had the keys of hell and death at his belt should lie imprisoned in a sepulcher of another, having his, in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body. That head, before which angels do cast down their crowns, should be crowned with thorns, and those eyes purer than the sun put out by the darkness of death, those ears which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels to hear the blasphemies of the multitude, that face which was fairer than the sons of men to be spit upon, that mouth and tongue which spoke as never man spake accused of blasphemy, those hands which freely swayed the scepter of heaven nailed to the cross, those feet like unto fine brass, nailed to the cross for man's sins. Each sense pained with a spear and nails, his smell with stinking odor being crucified on Golgotha, the place of skulls, his taste with vinegar and gall, his hearing with reproaches and the sight of his mother and disciples bemoaning him, his soul comfortless and forsaken, and all this for sin. All this for the very sins that Satan paints and puts fine colors upon. Oh, how should the consideration of this stir up the soul against sin? Now, in light of that, what do we read? I will be merciful to your unrighteousness. Not just merciful to our weakness. Not just merciful to our frailty and infirmity and our human struggles. The spirit being willing and the flesh weak. But merciful when we have not only crossed the line, but run across the line. Planned across the line. Shamelessly crossed the line. And we come to our senses and we see what we have done and we fear perhaps the righteous judgment of God that a holy God seeing what we have done in light of all that we know and all of our privileges and we think perhaps at this time that the well of mercy and grace must have gone dry for all of my many trips to it. And we confess our sins and lo and behold he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says of our lawless deeds or our iniquities and of our sins, I will remember them no more. To remember sin in this way, and we have to understand what the Bible means by this. It's, I, I know sometimes we speak of it this way. We might say something like, hey, if you were to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to talk to you about what I did the other day, and I know I confessed it, and the Lord's saying, what are you talking about? 
There, there is an element, I think, of that. But what really is being said is this. To remember, when the, when, when the slaves were in, in Egypt, we read in the beginning of Exodus, and the Lord remembered them. That is, he acted toward it. So the Bible talks about visiting widows and orphans or remembering vi- widows and orphans. It doesn't just mean like, oh, yeah, she's a widow and he's an orphan. It means doing something about it. It means visiting them. And what's meant here is that the consequences of our sin, the eternal consequence, now the temporal consequences of our sins, we may feel the bitter sting of them all our lives. But the eternal consequence And I want to remind us here just quickly because we're talking about the importance of sin. When I say the, the earthly consequences of sin do touch others, the consequences of our sin are not merely personal, touching us and our families, but they touch our churches. Sometimes they keep us from gathering together to pray because we're too ashamed to pray. We feel too guilty to pray. And sometimes the reality is, the Lord says, it's not that my ear cannot hear. It's not that my arm is so short that it cannot save. But your iniquities have made a gulf between us. It touches our families and our churches. Our sins touch our neighbors and our nation and our world. But the great reality, our sins are also, the consequences of our sin are eternal And he will not remember our sins in this way if we have fled to Jesus for refuge. If our guilt has been laid upon him, and the guilt and the shame and the stain of our sin, again, not necessarily the, eter- the earthly consequences, but the eternal consequences. And this is why the word of God can promise us that if we are in Christ, we will one day stand in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, faultless and blameless. For our sins have been taken away through the blood of Jesus, and we have been clothed with the fullness of the righteousness of Christ. And that brings us finally to the fulfillment of the promise. As I have already begun to deal with this truth, I just want to hammer it home. Because remember the point here, he's going to tell us that this covenant is better than that covenant. If you were to talk to an old covenant Jew and you were to say to him, hey, have you ever sinned? Have you ever fallen short of the glory of God? Have you ever transgressed the law of God in thought or word and deed? Have you ever minimalized the holiness of God or the eternal, the, the consequences of your sin? Have you ever feared the judgment to come? Well, they might say, yes, I have. And you say, what have you done? I've offered a bull or a goat. I've offered a turtle dove or a lamb or something. I have gone to a weak priest who has his own sins and I have sacrificed an animal on behalf. I have, I have acted in obedience to what has been revealed. They knew that God was forgiving. Psalm 51, one of the great texts about forgiveness is in the Old Testament. And the prophet Micah could say gloriously, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. The God who showed his glory to Moses when Moses prayed, show me your glory. And yes, there was some visible presentation of the glory of God to Moses as Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock. 
But the Lord also said, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and merciful and abounding and loving kindness and forgiving iniquity, that is who God is. David again could pray for God to blot out his transgressions and to have mercy upon him for his great sin. He had revealed that, again, his glory was in this, that he is a pardoning God. But there was ever in the mind of those under the old covenant and those priests who offered those sacrifices that in and of themselves as priests and as sacrifices, they were ultimately inadequate. They were a type or a shadow. For we go on to read in Hebrews 10, God willing, we'll get there in the weeks and months ahead. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins and to take away the guilt of sin and the shame of sin. They needed a better priest. This is the argument of the writer. You need a better priest to offer a better sacrifice, one sacrifice once for all to end all sacrifices. And when we say to you here today, your sins and your lawless deeds can be forgiven and that there is a hope that you, even though you have sinned a million times and more, can stand in the presence of a holy God, a God before whom sinless angels veil their faces, and that you can stand there with your face uplifted and you can stand in his presence with a fullness of joy. It's not because God doesn't really care about these things. It's because God has been satisfied with Jesus and with what Jesus has done upon the cross. That's why. It's not because God has decided, I'm going to ignore my holiness, I'm going to wink at your sin and just say, it's okay. No, your sins can be buried in the sea of forgetfulness because, as we sang a moment ago, the sinless Savior has died. Your iniquities are covered by the blood of Jesus and you are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. And that is something that Moses saw dimly and Isaiah saw dimly and Jeremiah saw dimly, but that we proclaim openly and joyfully. And this is why it's so much better And the one who made it is so much better. And to remember for them in context, that's the one you're thinking about forsaking. Do you see the spiritual madness of forsaking that one who is the mediator of a better covenant built upon better promises? And I want to close here with two words of application very simple if you as the child of God have sinned there is mercy with the Savior your sins all of them past present and future have already been laid upon him Jesus doesn't need to suffer more pain in heaven because you do something tomorrow. We're all laid upon. He doesn't need to die again. The fountain for sin and uncleanness was opened from Emmanuel's veins. 
Now, this forgiveness is not to be taken lightly. I think a very important text for you to memorize, if you haven't already memorized, is, the, is something of the, there's some tension here, but ultimate glory and instruction. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God were to call into account any one of your sins, for some of you that's more thought than action, some of you it's more words than deeds, some of you it's more deeds than thoughts and action, whatever it is, whatever you're most ashamed of, whatever you think about, When I say, my friend here today, you've sinned and you know you've sinned. And there's one or two or a series of things that you think about. That if I told you we're going to talk about who you are and what you are and what you said and what you did. And it's all going to be projected and your thoughts are going to be projected. And you'd say, I want to flee from that because I couldn't stand to have that even before my brethren and, and, and my fellow sinners. Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? But here's the glory. There is forgiveness with you. And then the counsel that you may be feared. That you may be feared. That is that I not make light, that I not trivialize grace. For some here, I know you long to be pure to sin no more, some of you who are struggling and failing and battling. You desire to be all that God has called you to be. And I was thinking again the other day of the words of John in 1 John chapter 2, where he lays out again some of this tension in the Christian life. Brethren, we are called to be holy, called to be separate, called to be distinct. And John says, I've written this letter so that you may not sin, That's the goal. I mean, that's the goal, that we would hear and that we would actually obey and put into practice the truths of God's word, that we would alter our lives and alter our affections and our words and our emotions and our relationships, that will actually be changed by God's word and by God's spirit. That is the will of God. That's why we preach. That's why we read. That's why we study together and exhort one another, is under the end that we might actually change and be made more and more like the Lord Jesus. And so he says, I write these things so that you may not sin. And I hope in all of us, you say, well, it sounds crazy sometimes to think of that way. You say, well, I know I'm going to. But, but don't you want to be at the point where you no longer, you don't have to go back to your wife and say, I did it again, or I said again, or say to one of the people and get up and say, I messed up again, or whatever the case. Don't you long for that to be true? But John says, not only I've written these things so that you might not sin. Again, that's the goal. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. And it's hard to hold these things in tension. Because, well, if we sin, we have an advocate. And we think to ourselves sometimes, well, if I, if I glory in grace and I can't take holiness and obedience seriously, and if I take holiness and obedience seriously, then I can't revel in grace. And John says, you can And for those of you living in sin, you need to awaken to your danger. We are praying for you who are not believers. We are crying out to God. Your parents are crying out to God. They're laboring. They're sharing truths. Uh, I rarely have a sermon where I'm not addressing some of you and you're not on my heart. And 
you're in my study as I'm praying and as I write certain things and come to certain conclusions in my study. For some of you, it's, yeah, I'm thinking about you. I mean, as believers, I'm thinking about you. As unbelievers, I'm thinking about you and how the word will comfort you and help you and challenge you. And for some, I want to remind you of God's goodness and of God's mercy. And sometimes you need to be awakened you know, some of you know what it feels like to, to know that something's wrong with your body. Maybe this happens more as you get older. Something's wrong with your body and, and you don't want to go to the doctor because you don't want to have your suspicions confirmed as though somehow, well, if I ignore this, that brain bleed will go away and that tumor, I, I, I'm probably, it might be, but I, I, I don't want to find out. And sometimes maybe you're afraid to go to God and say, God, show me who and what I am. Show me what I really am in your sight. Show me what my destiny is apart from Christ. Someone has well said that until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If you've seen yourself, though, if you have seen yourself, if there's, somebody, if there's anybody here who is wrestling with guilt, I am telling you that a mediator has come and he has opened a covenant with humanity by which he will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and lawless deeds will be remembered no more. That you can pillow your head tonight having looked away from yourself to the Savior and know I'm forgiven. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's mercy on these things. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments together around your word. Use them, we pray, for your glory, for our good, and for the good of that one who right now is a stranger. Lord, bring the stranger home, we pray. In Jesus' name.